This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. I am Gnomewise. I am Gonora. I am Iolite. I am Daxa. I am Grail. And I am Versus You. I am Versus You. And I am Versus You. I am Versus You. And I'm Versus You. Casually Hardcore, Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. GMT, only on vtwproductions.com. Well, hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Enjoying the con so far? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys might know our next panelist from his work on hit television shows like My Wife and Kids, Arrested Development, and more recently, Running Wild. He's also the author of the very popular young adult series, The Nightmare Academy. So please welcome Dean Laurie. Hi, everybody. Thanks for showing up. Uh, anybody bring food? <laughs> okay. Um, so this is going to be a little, uh, a little talk about uh, how writers' rooms function in, uh, in television, uh, because it's a world that I really didn't know very much about. Um, when I started out, for many years, uh, I wrote a, a bunch of movies. Um, I wrote uh, Major Pain. Um, Friday the 13th Part 9, Happy Gilmore, uh, My Boyfriend's Back, a bunch of movies. I started out in movies. Um, and I got a little burnt out by it uh, after a while. Um, and the reason that I got burnt out is that film writers are uh, constantly replaced. You know, it's like when you see credits for movies, you typically see four, five, six, you know, writers. Uh, and, and the reason is because everybody's got a guy. You know, the star's got a guy who wants to come in and is going to rewrite the dialogue and make the star happy. You know, the director has a guy. So you end up being very much like a, a you know, kind of a cog uh, in a machine. And it's fine, it's fun, you know, it's cool to do. But um, after a point, you just get tired of being fired. You know, so... <laughs> uh, but there's one type of screenwriting where uh, that doesn't happen. Um, and that's television writing. Um, because in TV, Writers are the boss, which is the exact opposite of the, you know, the way it works in movies. In movies, it's, you know, the director is usually the one that's in charge. Sometimes the producer, if the producer is you know, Jerry Bruckheimer or something like that. But in TV, uh, writers are the boss. Um, the directors report to you in television. Uh, the actors report to you, you know, unless they're a big star, in which case they can fire you. You, know, you could still get fired, I guess. Um, you know, because you can't be easily replaced uh, in television because you have to keep making a new one you know, every week. Like in a movie, once you've done your writing, 
they're done with you. You know, they're going to go make the movie and they don't need you anymore. But in television, every week they got to make another one. You could bring it up. <laughs> it's my son. Um, but in television, um, sorry, I'm so I'm such a girl about cold. I'm going to put this on. Um, but in uh, you know. Uh, it, in television, every single week you got to make a new one, so they need to kind of keep you around. Um, so I started working in TV, and uh, the first show I worked on, I co-created the show with Damon Wayans called 413 Hope Street, um, which was very short-lived. It was only on the air for like half a season. It was on Fox. Um, and, and I really enjoyed sort of the, the, the process of doing television. I'd never done that before. Um, and uh, you know, as I went along sort of in my television career, um, I was an executive producer on the show My Wife and Kids for five seasons, which starred Damon Wayans, uh, Arrested Development, Till Death, Brothers, Running Wild. I, I, I sort of accrued a lot of television experience sort of over, um, over the years. And when I did 413 Hope Street, which was really the first show that I did, um, I'd come out of movies, you know. So movies are, are, are very solitary for the most part, you're just in a room sort of quietly writing. You know, you'll go and you'll meet and you'll get notes on occasion, but for the most part, it's just you in a room. So collaborative writing, which is pretty much the entirety of what television is, was, was very, very new to me and was kind of uh, intimidating. So I thought here what I would do is kind of give you a, a leg up just on how, how television writing works, uh, how you write collaboratively in a room, and how those writers' rooms are run, because it's a very kind of arcane, odd uh, deal. So to understand how writers' rooms are run, um, there's, uh, uh, there's different kinds of writers' rooms depending on the kind of show that uh, you're going to do. Um, so there's two main types of shows. Uh, there are one-hours. Um, and these are typically referred to as dramas, uh, even though now sometimes they can have some elements of comedy in it, and those are referred to as, as dramedies, which I kind of hate for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why, it just rubs me the wrong way. But, um, you know, examples of dramedies are um, Glee, uh, Desperate Housewives, Pushing Daisies. These are all one-hour shows that, you know, have a certain element of uh, comedy in them. Um, and then you have straight dramas, uh, and, and these uh, also come in a couple of main types. Um, many of them are, are serialized, meaning that they have story arcs that last a full season. They sort of want you to you know, begin watching and invest in you know, the story and hang in there till uh, the end of the season. They're, they're sort of like soap operas. Um, examples of those shows would be uh, True Blood, um, Walking Dead, 24, The Tudors, Lost, you know, those are all sort of straight serialized dramas. Um, and the strength and the weakness of those kinds of shows is that they're very, very difficult to jump into those shows in the middle. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to come into like the middle of say, heroes or something like that, because you don't really know the characters, you don't know the storylines, you know, in Lost is sort of the same thing. Um, but the strength of that is that if you are invested, you know, if you know the stories and you know the characters, you are much more likely to come back every single week to watch it because it's a soap opera, because you want to, you know, see what happens. Um, the other type of straight drama, which is a little different, uh, is typically known as a procedural. And um, these are also kind of, oh, dancing time. No. Uh, 
These are often referred to as doctor cop lawyer shows because they're, they're typically, you know, television, that's what people refer to them as, um, because they're typically about doctors, cops, and lawyers. Uh, you know, examples of these, um, House, uh, Grey's Anatomy, Law and Order, CSI, you know, these are all sort of straight one-hour procedurals. Um, I'm sure you could name a hundred more. Um, procedurals are almost always self-contained, meaning that you can usually view them in any order, um, and the plot of the episode wraps up completely uh, by the end of the episode. So, you know, and, and often they're built around a case, you know, which is where you get the doctor, cop, lawyer, because, you know, all of those professions usually involve cases that can be, you know, solved. So, you know, House is presented with an, an undiagnosable disease that, you know, by the end of the episode, he will miraculously diagnose, and it'll be wrapped up, you know, by the end. Same with, you know, CSI will be presented with, you know, some unsolvable murder that they'll solve by, by the end. Um, so those are the two, in terms of one hours, those are the two main types, you know, um, uh, uh, procedurals and uh, serialized uh, shows. Now, um, that said, uh, you can also have a mix of things. Um, and, and that's actually a little bit more recent. You know, for instance, there are serialized procedurals, like The Wire. You know, is, is, it's a cop show, but it's serialized, and so it's a mix of things. There are also, like, one-hour procedural dramedies, like most of the David Kelly shows, you know, like um, Boston Legal. It has comedy in it, but it's a procedural in that there's a case that comes in and you wrap it up. So those are all the kinds of one-hours, and they have a very specific way of being written, and, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, the other main type of show uh, is commonly referred to as a half-hour. And these are virtually always comedies. Um, and half hours, like dramas, also come in a couple of types. Uh, there's the multi-camera half hour. Now, this is what half hours always used to be. It was, um, you know, invented uh, a long time ago, I think for I Love Lucy. Um, and in these kinds of shows, the episode is performed live in front of usually four cameras. Um, and it's presented sort of like a stage play. And, you know, the cameras sort of shoot the show. Um, and uh, and the, the, the shooting goes relatively quickly. So examples of these, My Wife and Kids, a show I worked on, um, that, was, uh, that was a multi-camera. Two and a Half Men, well, I've got, I guess they have their own problems now, but Two and a Half Men, <laughs> uh, Big Bang Theory, these are all, you know, sort of contemporary multi-camera shows. Um, multi-camera shows tend to be heavily verbal. You know, there's lots and lots of dialogue in multi-camera shows, and they're usually very simple visually. And that comes basically because, you know, of, of how you shoot them. Um, you, you present them like stage plays. Very little is told in terms of story with the camera because you don't shoot them like movies. They're, you know, they're shot like stage plays. So they're very dialogue-oriented. Uh, the other type of half hour um, are called single cameras. Now, these are shot just like movies. Um, you know, uh, they're virtually never shot in front of a live audience. Um, they often have many outside locations, much more than you would see in a multi-camera. Um, and examples of these would be uh, Modern Family, My Name is Earl, uh, Arrested Development was a single camera show. On Arrested, we actually used two cameras, but technically it's called a, a single camera show. Um, and right now in the air, there's a real mix of, of you know, single and, and multi-camera comedies. Um, comedies in general, 
are usually self-contained, particularly multi-camera comedies. You know, you'll present a story at the beginning that'll get wrapped up by the end of the episode. They're not serialized. Um, you know, it'll be, you know, I've, I've, the husband forgot his wife's anniversary, you know, an old chestnut, and, and that'll get wrapped up by the end. And, you know, next week when you come to watch, you will have never remembered that previously he forgot, you know, her anniversary and she's pissed about it or whatever. Um, they exist in their own little bubble. Now, all of these kinds of shows are presided over by a showrunner. The showrunner is um, the boss, and uh, it's usually the person who wrote the pilot, um, although not always. But for the most part, the person who wrote the pilot is the person who runs the show. Um, and they are responsible for the creative direction of the show. They're responsible for the script, for the final result, the directors, the writers, the actors, everybody reports to the showrunner. And the showrunner is virtually always a writer which is, you know, if you come out of movies, it's just a shocking feeling because you're, you're so used to the writer being kind of marginalized in movies when in television, you know, you're the one in charge. It's, it's, um, uh, it's surprising. Um, and the showrunner uh, is responsible also usually for making the final pass through all of the scripts that get shot. So even though the set is sort of the, the, the heart of, of television shows, the writer's room is the brain. And that's where the showrunner will spend the, the vast majority of his or her time. So let's talk about what happens in the writer's room of these different kinds of shows. Uh, first of all, I would say, what is a writer's room? You know, what is it? Because I, I, to tell you the truth, I didn't even really know until I started working in television. Well, a writer's room is often referred to just as the room. Everybody calls it the room. And there's usually anywhere from four to maybe 12 writers on a staff. Uh, writing these shows. And the way the room functions depends on the showrunner and the type of show that it is. So in a one hour, uh, the staff will get together um, at the beginning of the season, and usually what they'll do is they'll arc out the season if it's a serialized show. You know, they'll, they'll say, you know, by the end of the season, we want to end up here. This is the story that we want to tell, the season-long story that we want to tell. Um, and the staff along with the showrunner, will sort of pitch out ideas for what might happen during the course of, of that season. And the showrunner will pick the best ideas, or at least the ones that he or she likes the most. And, um, and then usually as a group, the room will help lay out the major plot beats of every episode. And so the way that that'll work is, you know, everybody sits there pitching. You know, what if, um, uh, I don't know, on 413 Hope Street, you know, what, what if this guy... Um, uh, what if there's a murder um, at the school? And, um, and then, you know, somebody else might say, but what, you know, what if somebody covers it up? What if the, the, the? So now everybody's sort of pitching ideas, and it is the showrunner's responsibility to pick the ideas that he or she likes the best and begin to sort of lay them out in an order. So again, you're, everybody is pitching to this one person. Um, the showrunner then will take those sort of core kernel ideas and pitch them to the studio and the network. Um, and the ones that the studio and network approves are the ones that you will be allowed to go to script on, meaning you can, you can move forward with the process of writing that script. So at this point, you just have sort of very general ideas. So what happens then is a writer or a writing team, um, and a writing team in television, writing teams in television are actually very, um, very desirable. And here's why. Um, they get paid as if they're one person. <laughs> so... Studios love writing teams because it means you get two writers for the cost of one. They have to split one salary. 
So and that's a way that a lot of people break in at the beginning, is they form writing teams because it's considered like you know monetarily uh, desirable. So um, so anyway, the um, uh, a writer or a, a writing team uh, will be assigned to write a script. And they will go off and they will write an outline. Now, again, we're talking about one hour. So they will go off and they'll write an outline. Um, and they'll give the outline to the showrunner. The showrunner will go through it, you know, give his or her notes. Um, and this will go back and forth a little bit as, you know, you'll just sort of work on drafts of an outline until eventually uh, the showrunner is satisfied with that outline. Um, so then the outline goes to the studio and the network. You'll get notes from them. You go back and forth with them. And eventually they'll approve you to write the script. So now you go off, the writer or writing team goes off and writes the script. Um, this can happen sometimes at home, which is fun, you know, because you get to leave and go home for a week or two, you know, and you, you write your script and, you know, it's like you feel a little like you're playing hooky even though you have to actually write a script. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, you'll have to do it in the office. Like some showrunners get a little paranoid about that because they know you're, you know, playing World of Warcraft at home, so they'd rather you, <laughs> you know, they'd rather you be where they can see you so they know you're working. Um, so once that script is, is written, um, it will then be given to the showrunner, uh, and uh, the showrunner will often at that point do their own rewrite of the script. And the reason that the showrunner in, in one hour typically do rewrites of the script is because you want to feel like the season has a singular voice to it, which doesn't mean that you know an enormous amount of the work of the original writers isn't part of the script, but you know you want to kind of feel like like that each episode doesn't feel like it's a different show. It all has to feel kind of the same. So the showrunner will usually do a rewrite of the script, um, and then that script is sent to production and shot. Um, and on a one hour, everything is shot. Um, like a movie. So you'll, uh, those episodes will typically shoot five to seven days, um, and it's just, you know, it goes off to the production crew, and they just, they'll work, you know, 12-hour days, and every single day, you know, just hack away at the script, and they'll shoot it. Half hours are very, very different. Um, whereas in a one-hour, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times the writer will spend a good deal of time writing outside of the room, and that's very similar to how feature writers work. Half hours work very, very differently. Um, in a half hour, most of the scripts are written by the room as a unit. Um, stories will be pitched at the beginning, uh, similar to one hours, um, and episodes will be arced out. Um, and outlines will be written. All of these things will happen by the room as a unit. And the way that, uh, the way that that works is, again, you've got a group of writers all sitting together around a table who are pitching out ideas. And they're pitching ideas to the showrunner who will pick and choose what they like, what they don't like. And you will have a writer's assistant um, in, in the room. And the, the function of the writer's assistant is very important. But basically, I'll talk about them a little bit more later, but the writer's assistant um, sits there and types everything up that's being said, and that appears on a monitor at the end of the table, so that everybody can look at this monitor and see what you're writing as you write it. And what's odd is, a lot of times, it doesn't feel like writing, because you're used to sitting down at a computer and typing, right? And that's writing, and you know, you see what appears. Here, you're just talking. You know, and somebody else is actually typing it up, and it's all kind of coming together that way. It, it, it takes a while kind of to get used to. Um, then, after the studio and the network um, approves the outline, the script will either be assigned to an individual writer 
to go off and do a draft, which sometimes happens, although not always, or the room as a unit will take that outline and write the whole show. Um, and that happens very commonly. Even if a single writer goes off and does a draft of the show based on the outline, it will always come back and then be heavily rewritten by the room. Virtually never in half hours does a writer's script, uh, you know, a single writer's script be the thing that just makes it all the way through to production. So the question is, how do you write these things as a room? Well, it's the comedy writer's job to pitch ideas, jokes, dialogue to the showrunner, and the showrunner dictates what you know, he or she wants in the show to the writer's assistant, who I mentioned before. Um, the writer's assistant's typing it up in real time so the entire staff can see it, and this is an intimidating process. If you've never done it, it's very, very intimidating. Because most writers are solitary by nature. You know, and um, the idea of sitting in a room with a bunch of other people and pitching out jokes and trying to get a laugh from these other people um, is, is tough. It's tough. But, you know, that's how, that's how the process works. And that's how these things get written. Um, and, you know, so you'll sit there and everybody will pitch out lines of dialogue. You know, what if Michael says this? What if the kid says this? What if the girl falls down the stairs? What if blah, 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 blah. And everybody's pitching out ideas. And, you know, as you do it, you begin to form scenes. Now, you know, I talked a little bit about the difference between multi-camera and single-camera. Like multi-camera, like my wife and kids was a multi-camera show. Those are, in a sense, simpler to write. Um, because like in, in, in terms of my wife and kids, um, the stories tend to be kind of straightforward. A lot of times they're stories that you've seen before. Um, you know, it's, you know, I forgot the anniversary, um, you know, the kid's going to drive for the first time, the, you know, girl's going, the girl's wearing clothes that uh, the dad thinks are too skimpy, you know, it's like, and what ends up happening a lot of times with those multi-camera shows is they become almost like plays that are performed by different groups. Like, you know, you take the one thing, you know, the girl's wearing an outfit that the dad thinks is too skimpy. Well, probably every single multi-camera show has done that story, right? It's just that you see that story performed by this group of people. So here, you know, it's like the my wife and kids people are going to do it here. Cosby's going to do it this way. And so, you know, a lot of times you'll see those same things and, 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 you know, the difficulty there, the challenge becomes how can I try to find a fresh take on this material and how can I write it with our group of people to make it, you know, kind of unique. And, um, and, and often in like a star-driven show, you, like my wife and kids was very much a star-driven show, um, you end up spending a lot of time trying to find ways to let your star be funny, you know, to let your star shine. So, you know, you try to put them into situations that you know that they will be able to score in. If they're a good physical comedian, you know, you, you write towards that. So, you know, it, th those are kind of organic. Um, uh, single camera uh, comedies are much more written, in a sense. They're, they're, much, more like, they're much more like features. Um, when I started working on Arrested Development, which was the first single camera show I did, I had, I had just come off of My Wife and Kids, which was written in its own very sort of specific way. Arrested Development was totally different. In fact, Arrested Development was totally different from <laughs> almost everything. Um, you know, it, it was, I'll give you an example. Usually on a, um, on a multi-camera show, um, or, or often on a single camera show, you'll have what's known as an A story, right? This is the main story. 
And it usually involves your lead. Your lead is trying to do something and something is in his or her way. And that's your main story, right? And you beat that story out. Then oftentimes you'll have a B story. You know, a B story is a slightly smaller story that you'll feather into the A story and it'll often be something different. You know, the kid wants a bike or something and then, you know, and that's its own little story, right? And you sort of feather that in. On rare occasions, rare occasions, you'll have a C story or what they call a runner, which is just like a little one or two beat thing that, you know, a little joke thing you might throw in there. Well, in Arrested Development, we had an A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H story for every episode because, because the, the, the plan there was that every single, there are eight characters, so eight regulars, so every single character um, got their own story in every episode. So every character was serviced with their own story in every episode, which meant that you had to generate a stunning amount of plot. Every episode required an enormous amount of plot, you know, and, um, uh, and that was, it was a, a new way of writing. It was kind of hard to get your mind around that a little bit. Um, and the way that those stories were generated were a little different. Um, a lot of times we begin with just sort of free association. You know, you just have a, just a funny idea. Like I recall there was, um, we were talking about, um, what if there was a place called Wee Britain? You know, there, there, there was this idea, you had like Little Italy, you know, Chinatown. There's all, you know, cities have all these places. Well, what if like, what if Britain had its own little place in a city? And what if, you know, and then you start riffing on that. Okay, well, okay, so there's Wee Britain. Well, what's in Wee Britain? Well, everybody's got yellow teeth, we decided. <laughs> um, you know, we decided that they functioned on Greenwich Mean Time, you know, <laughs> which seemed funny. We decided that in Wee Britain... You know, cars drove on the opposite side of the street, but only in Wee Britain. So, so there was all kind of traffic. So, you know, but again, this is all riffing. Now, we didn't know what we were going to do with Wee Britain at that point, but it was just a notion. It was an, an, an idea. There was, you know, um, <laughs> the idea of the Poppins, which was this m Mary Poppins doll that would come flying down a string like every hour on the hour and we read, which is like the main event of we read. And, and then, and then, and this was again kind of specific to that show. We, we were very, very, um, we were very aware that people enjoyed watching that show, um, uh, you know, on DVD later and that they often rewatch the episodes a lot. So we tried to put a lot of density of stuff into it. Um, and then, we also knew that people like to freeze frame stuff on DVD and, and look at the freeze frame. So like, for instance, with the Poppins, we wrote the history of the Poppins on a plaque that's on the wall, and the camera just pans past it. You'd never, it was a lot of time, you'd never be able to read it unless you got the DVD and freeze framed on it, and if you read it, it's really funny. We spent probably an hour writing the, the you know, knowing no one's ever gonna see this, and if anybody ever finds it, it'll be kind of fun for them, whatever. So, um, so, you know, so we had Weebrit, and then there was also this notion of that we wanted, um, we wanted Michael, to, um, the lead, to uh, carry on, to start a romance with a girl who he doesn't realize is severely mentally challenged, and he just, he just doesn't know, and he doesn't notice. And so we started going, well, how could you not notice? Like, what, under what circumstances would you not notice such a thing? So we thought, well, what if she's British? <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, British people sound really smart. You know, it's like, 
you know, you take the dumbest British person, they seem real smart because the accent's really smart, right? You know? And so we're like, well, that would help. And I said, well, what if she's gorgeous? You know, that would help because, you know, we tend to, you know, people are good looking, you know, you don't, you don't even get to are they smart. You're just like, oh, they're good looking. So, um, so then... So, you know, then there was that idea. So then we realized, well, we have We Britain. And in order to sell her, you know, we, we thought, well, maybe she should be British. So, and she ended up being Charlize Theron, which didn't hurt. Um, and, um, and so then we thought, well, maybe she lives in We Britain. And maybe our, our guy meets her in We Britain. That sort of, you know, seemed to make sense. And then, you know, separate from that, there was a whole other storyline that involved um, the, the dad doing real estate scams. And then we thought, well, maybe... Michael has to go to Wee Britain to get documents to figure out the real estate scam, and he runs into Charlize, who doesn't seem dumb because she's got a British accent, you know. And so all of these things, like, pile onto each other, you know. And, but they were all separate threads. They were all just little comedy bits that were sort of pitched out. And then you begin to see connections and all of that. And that's just like, that ends up just being essentially one scene in a show with, with many of them. Like, in a typical... In a typical half hour, you'll have, I don't know, 14 to maybe, maybe 25 scenes in a typical half hour. On Arrested Development, it was not uncommon for us to have a script with 90 scenes in it, which is a shocking amount of scenes. And that, that was, you know, because very often, you know, you would cut to a scene, you, you know, you'd cut to a location to just see, uh, you know, Tobias and somebody in a room and she shouts, you're blue, or something. And that's the whole scene, right? But you have to build a set, you know, bring cameras and actors and everything to go and shoot that. So anyway, so totally different. And, and that's how single camera shows, you know, uh, are get written. It's a, just a very, very different style of writing. So in the writer's room, there are a few usually unspoken uh, rules to how you should behave in a writer's room. Um, I've never known anybody to really say, to really take a new writer aside and say, this is how you're supposed to behave. But I'll tell you how you're supposed to behave because I've learned it the hard way over many years. Um, first, you are to never shoot down another writer's pitch. Um, now, the, the, the desire to do this is great because... <laughs> You know, because it's like you're kind of in competition. Everybody wants to get their material in the show, you know. And so eh, if somebody pitches something that, that seems to obviously not work or you don't like, you know, you kind of almost want to go, eh, I don't know if that works. It's not your job. It's not your job to shoot down somebody else's pitch. It's the showrunner's job to shoot down somebody else's pitch. Um, they select what goes in the show, not you. Um, your job is strictly to pitch. And what's, what's interesting, you know, working with a lot of different showrunners is everybody's got different ways. The showrunners have different ways of shooting down pitches. You know, because first of all, you've you got to understand, you're, you're, you're doing this every single day for 12, 16 hours a day in the same room with the same group of people all the time. So there are thousands of pitches coming out all the time. The vast majority of them are going to be shot down. Um, but, you know, you, you don't want to, like given the amount of time you've spent doing that, you don't want to sit there constantly going, no, 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 you know, because it would be, you know, heart deadening. So, um, you know, so uh, like one showrunner um, that I loved, uh, his way of shooting down a pitch was every time you'd pitch it, he'd go, uh-huh. And that meant, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> because because if, it was, if it was yes, he'd go, 
that's good, put that in, right? And then, you know, and then you suddenly see it sort of magically appear on the wall. Uh, you know, another show, another show, Mitch on Arrested Development, he used to, the thing he used to like to do is go, that's great, that's great, which meant no. Because, <laughs> because again, if he didn't say put that in, it didn't go in. So, um, so first thing, you know, first rule, uh, do not shoot down another writer's pitch. Um, also, you know, sometimes somebody will pitch something and you'll see that it's a plot beat that won't work with something that comes later in the episode. You just know it won't. Or maybe you'll see that it's a duplicate of something that you did in a previous season that everybody sort of forgot about. You know, in these cases, you can kind of maybe gently say, it's a little familiar. We may have done something like that before, but you better, like, you better only play that card a couple of times. Because if you become the guy who constantly shoots stuff down, you're going to be in trouble. Second, only fight for a joke if it's the last one you can write. This is something that Don Rio, the great showrunner Don Rio, used to love to say. Only fight for a joke if it's the last one you could write. Because it would be the tendency of many people to, you know, you pitch a joke, you're certain it's a really good joke, it doesn't get in for whatever reason, and then you start defending it. No, but I think it'd be really good if, if you know, if he, does it, if he does it really fast, if he says it really fast, or maybe if he falls down the stairs when you do, and, you know, and you're sitting here trying to defend this and, and you're, just, you're just in hell. Your job is to just keep pitching ideas. If this one doesn't get in, that's fine. Remember, you know, another one will get in, um, uh, you know, you, you should be able to get another one in. Uh, because there are a thousand reasons why a joke or an idea or a plot beat or something might not get in the show. The showrunner may just not like it. He may know the star doesn't want to do it. The, um, they may know that the, the, you know, the studio doesn't want that kind of a direction for the show. Whatever it is, you don't really know. Just don't fight for it. You move on. Someday, eventually, you may be in charge of a room, and then you can decide what goes in. Now, Damon Wayans, who's one of my closest friends, um, you know, I, I met him on Major Pain many years ago, and we've done a lot of things since then, used to delight, probably still does, in proving to writers that a joke didn't work. Um, <laughs> you know, he'd say very nicely, you know, there'd be a joke, and, and he'd say, I don't know, you know, maybe do we have another one? And the foolhardy writer that would sit there and go, no, I think it'll be funny. I think it'll be funny. You know, if you, you know how you're funny when you do this like this? If you do that, I, I think it'll be really funny. And Damon would say, you think so? All right. So then you'd, then you'd go and you'd be at a network rehearsal or studio rehearsal or something, and there's an audience and a big crowd and everything. And then he would go and he would perform your joke and he would do it just deadly. Just absolutely <laughs> deadly. He'd just kill it. And then he'd turn to you and go, eh, doesn't work. <laughs> and then you'd go, yeah, all right. So you'd learn. <laughs> you'd learn. Um, you know, because a, a performer basically has to believe in something in order to perform it well. It's a very hard job. They have to believe in it. Um, on my wife and kids, we did, uh, we did an episode, well, a friend of mine, a very good and Emmy award-winning writer, uh, this guy Jim Vallely, great writer, um, who also wrote on Arrested Development, um, wrote an episode called Junior Learns to Drive. It was very funny. Okay? It was about the kid on the show learns to drive. So he worked hard on the script. He wrote it. We all liked it. Um, Damon came in um, and said, uh, so I just read, uh, into the writer's room, said, uh, I just read Junior Learns to Drive. And uh, we said, oh, really? What would you think? He said, um, Junior already knows how to drive. And so 
We said, uh, all right. So we just threw the script out and we wrote a new script. Um, so then the next season, Jim had a great idea for an episode. Claire learns to drive. So we, we changed the names in the script, did a tiny rewrite on it. Damon was fine with that. He didn't care. Great, Claire, fine, great. We'll do Claire learns to drive. Um, you know, ideas are like buffaloes. You, you want to eat all parts of the animal. You know, you can, you know, if, if, you, if you don't use this idea now, you'll use it a season from now. You'll use it in another show. You'll put it in a book. You'll use it in a movie. You know, that's why you just move on if something doesn't get picked. Um, the third thing I'd say is stay positive. You've got to stay positive. There's a phrase, a common phrase, known as good in a room. Um, and what this refers to are just people who are, um, are just positive influences in the writer's room. Maybe they have a great laugh. Maybe they're just cheerful. Maybe they're just not, you know, constantly dour. Um, there, are, there are many writers who have made long careers, not because they're necessarily the most brilliant writers who have ever lived, but because they're good in a room, because they have a good laugh, because they bring energy to the room. And when you're stuck with people for that long, it, it's, it's a meaningful thing, because writers' rooms are marathons. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not sprints. I mean, you, you often spend over 12 hours a day um, sitting around a table with the same people week after week after week. I mean, you, you get to the point, you know each other intimately. I mean, you get to the point, first of all, very quick, quickly where you've seen everybody's outfits. You know, so you know, you know the totality of everybody's wardrobes because you've seen it every day. So then if somebody comes up with something new, you know, you know that's a new sweater. You got a new sweater, didn't you? It becomes a big topic of conversation because, you know... Um, you know, if, if somebody's got, you know, bad, uh, bad hygiene, you know, this can be terrible because you're literally sitting around a table together for hours and hours and hours. Um, so if you're negative or you're difficult, you would better be really brilliant. <laughs> like, you'd better be able to write spectacularly uh, just so people will tolerate you. Um, fourth, you've got to check your ego at the door. Um, this is one of the toughest things to learn. It's very hard because, you know, as writers, um, we all have ego. I mean, it takes a certain amount of ego to say that your ideas are, you know, so great that people should pay money to, to read them or see them, you know. So, so it's a little difficult sometimes to kind of, like, check that. But, you know, in a writer's room, you have to embrace the idea of collaboration and accept that only a handful of your ideas are ultimately going to be used. And that's okay, because that's just the nature of the job. You, gotta, you just got to keep swinging. Now, you know, you would probably ask, you know, after all this, why, why would I ever want to do this? I mean, because it's kind of stinky and the hours are long and all this. And, and th there are a lot of good reasons. First of all, it pays good. You know, uh, television writing pays good. It can be a lot of fun. Um, you know, you really can have a lot of laughs, even on a drama, even particularly on a drama. You know, you can have a lot of laughs together just because, you know, you have a certain amount of camar camaraderie. Um, it, it's often thrilling to see your work performed and visualized in ways that are better than you imagined. It's Nothing is more thrilling than to write something and then see a performer bring something to it that you didn't, that didn't even occur to you. That, that's always really fun to see somebody elevate something that you've written. And, you know, I, I would argue that TV is quickly emerging, if it hasn't emerged already, as the dominant medium for telling, you know, complex, layered visual stories. I, I think even more so than movies. So the big question really is, the question that I get asked the most is, how do you break in? Say so you want to be a television writer. How do you do it? 
Well, like everything, there is no one right answer. But uh, here is probably the most common way. Remember the writer's assistant that we talked about earlier. Now, the writer's assistant is this person who, um, this, this is an impossible job. First of all, you've got to be a great typist. And they sit there at the computer all day long, um, and their job, among many other jobs, is you know, to type up what's being said, to type everything sort of you know, into the script. The other thing they do is you will spend a lot of time in a writer's room doing something that doesn't really seem like writing. Um, you, you'll, everybody will be sitting around a writer's room and you're just bitching with each other, you know? And basically you're saying, oh, you know, oh, uh, last night, you know, my wife had a dream and in the dream I did something bad and she woke up mad at me because of something I did in a dream. And then so another way, you know, that happened to me. I had said, and now you're just talking, but what you're really doing is you're generating ideas. It seems like you're just kind of talking, and you are, but you're generating story ideas. While all that's going on, the writer's assistant is sitting there typing all this stuff up. Um, and so at the end of the day, because you'll forget all that stuff, and then they'll go organize it and all this. So it's a very difficult job. Um, but Virtually all writer's assistants are not people that want to be career assistants. They're writers. They, they want to get into, you know, onto a staff. Um, typically they have, you know, uh, spec TV shows that they've written, samples. They're usually writers, you know. And here's how they can be helped. Um, by WGA, Writers Guild of America, by WGA rules, every show has to give at least two scripts a season to, a free, uh, to freelancers, to people that are not on the staff of the show. And the reason for that is to bring in new writers. They, 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 they are mandate a way to bring new writers, you know, sort of into the fold. Um, so very often, these two freelance scripts will be given to the writer's assistants if the room doesn't hate them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so if you've been cheerful and if you're a, you know, you're a good assistant and people in general like you, very often, the writer's assistants will be given a script. And, and that's a big deal because, one, it puts you into the writer's guild. Just doing one script puts you into the writer's guild. It gives you a produced sample of a show. Um, and, you know, and that is very often the mechanism for getting on a show. And, and it's not at all uncommon for a person to be a writer's assistant on a show for maybe two seasons and then get invited onto the staff in the third season at a low level and then a new writer's assistant is brought in. So that's, that is one way that people break into um, television. It is also possible to get on staff based on a, a strong writing sample. Um, but that's a tough road. It's a tough road. Um, and here's why. Um, you know, you, you can improve your chances greatly by getting a recommendation um, from somebody that the showrunner trusts. And the, the reason is that showrunners don't have any time to read manuscripts, to read unsolicited. The, the, the demands of the job are just too great. There's just not enough hours in the day. So they really don't sit there in general and read unsolicited manuscripts. But if there's a recommendation from somebody that they trust, they're much more likely to say, all right, let me, uh, let me look. I'll, I'll look at it. Um, a way to do this is to target a lower level writer on a writing staff. Um, and these are the people that will have, uh, if you look in the credits on shows, their credit will be something like staff writer or co-producer or something like that. Those are lower level um, writer positions on the show. They're in the room and they're doing the same thing everybody else does, but, but they're low, lower level. And, um, and nobody ever pays any attention to those people because they're the junior writers on a show, right? So 
If you, everybody has a Facebook account and websites and everything. If you contact one of those junior people and say, hey, I've written something, I love your work on this show, would you be willing to take a look at the script? They might be because nobody ever pays any attention to them. <laughs> you know? Because it's like everybody pays attention to the high level producer, nobody pays attention to these guys. If, they, if you really do have a solid sample and they read your script and like it, and then they go to the showrunner and say, you know what, I actually read this pretty funny script. I don't know if we're looking for somebody mid-season or something. Then the showrunner is much more likely to take a look at a script because, because it is submitted by somebody that you know, they know. It'll, it'll help it stand out for, from the pile. Or maybe you'll write a novel, and the novel will get purchased. Uh, you know, for a TV show, that that happens too. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to break in. You know, and now a, a lot of times performers end up you know getting into the writers' room you know through being performers. Um, so that's that's in general the way that writers' rooms functions in, in the sort of the largest sense, and um, uh, and that's my presentation for today. So I thought I would answer any questions anybody had. Uh, yeah. Well, then how would you get a job as the writer's assistant? Well. Um, Typically, uh, you know, you would you would look at the uh, the upcoming shows that are um, uh, uh, that are about to go into production, and you know, you send in a resume to um, uh, whoever is in charge of hiring there. You know, you look at breakdowns or um, something like that. Or if you happen to know somebody on the show, you know, somebody you know involved in the show, um, you try to get them to put in a word for you uh, like that. But that's, that's a job that, you know, either people that have been hired before, um, you know, are brought back in, or, you know, they do take a lot of new people because there's a lot of turnover with writer's assistants because most of them move on to become writers. So there's, they're constantly sort of looking for people. So, you know, essentially what you would do is you would, you would, you know, see the upcoming shows, then you would contact um, the, the person, the producer in charge, the line producer of that show, not, not one of the writers, but the line producer, and just say, you know, you'd like to send in a resume, and, you know, you'd like to be considered for the position. And you have to have, um, you have to have very strong typing skills. Um, that's the one thing that the job really requires. You've got to be an excellent typist. But, um, but outside of that, it's, it's pretty, much, pretty much open. Any other? Yeah. Hello. Uh, who are you? Uh, so my wife hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so two things. One, yeah. so how much voice does like Damon or like a Steve Carell or something? I mean, because you said they could yeah. script, but I mean, yeah. do they just have carte blanche or is it kind of depending on? Well, they, they have a lot. Like, you know, St Steve Carell, I don't know to what extent he, um, he involves himself in the production of The Office. I, I, I don't know on that particular show. Um, you know, I don't know if he considers himself like a real producer on the show. He may just very well get his scripts and just perform them. Um, uh, Damon, on the other hand, was the co-creator of My Wife and Kids and was an executive producer on the show. So he had, um, he had as much say, if not more say, than anybody on the show. And so, you know, which is not to say that, you know, he... He arbitrarily, in general, you know, would get rid of stuff because ultimately, at the end of every week, you've got to shoot a show. You know, you've got to shoot something. So, you know, um, uh, but on a star-driven show, uh, the star typically has enormous authority. Um, you know, Cosby on the Cosby Show. You know, you'd you'd, you'd better make uh, Dr. Cosby happy <laughs> because you know, um, because he is uh, you know, yay or nay power on everything. Part, part B is, yeah. so you're in the writer's room and you're one of the guys that never, ever gets picked. Yeah. Are you, are you, uh, you're fearing, you're fearing for your job. You're, yeah, if, you're, if your work never gets in the show, you, well, 
And here's another thing about being a writer. First of all, it's really hard. It's, it's because it's a very intimidating situation. You've got usually eight very verbal, funny people around you that are all pitching, and you're trying to get a word in edgewise. And in addition, you know, most writers are not by nature performers. And so it's like, you know, so you have to perform your material in order to try to get a laugh. And that's another thing that you sort of learn. Like, if you sit there saying, well, what if, you know, what if he, what if he says something about, um, you know, she goes to, you know, he's going to, uh, you know, he wants to make out with her in the garage or something. You know, you, you'll never, you know, you, you, you have to sell your joke and you have to, you have to, you know, uh, and the same is true in a drama. You know, you've got, whatever the idea is, you've got to really authoritatively sell it and it's a, it's a hard thing to do. And, and people that, that don't do that, it's probably not the right career for them. You know, which is not to say that, um, that you're a bad writer. It's just its own, it's, it's a weird specific collaborative thing. You know, you could write movies or novels or something like that. But I know that like, um, um, I remember Gary Marshall, uh, who created and ran everything, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, all those shows, Mork and Mindy. You know, he said that they used to, um, the way that they used to work was they had the senior writers um, right around the writer's room table. And then the junior writers would be given a chair behind them. And, and so the junior writers couldn't sit at the table. They were sitting behind. And he said the hardest part was lunch because the senior writers had a table that they could eat their lunch on. But the junior writers would have to sit there with it on their lap. And so the thing that, that motivated all the junior writers was they just wanted to be able to eat their lunch at a table. And so, you know, and so, but that was like his, his motivation to get them to speak up, talk up if you want to get in, if you want to sit at the table, you gotta, you know. Um, so, it, uh, yeah, it's just a weird skill you have to learn. Like Woody Allen started, you know, in, in, uh, as a television writer in a writer's room. And um, I remember talking about, talking about him. They said he was very quiet. He would very, very rarely pitch. And that often the showrunner, knowing that he was brilliant, and that because he was, Woody, you know, he was truly brilliant, would quiet the room down to get a pitch from him and would encourage him to talk. And sometimes you find yourself, if, if you're running a room, and I've run a lot of rooms, if you find yourself running a room, a, a lot of times you want the best out of everybody. You know, your goal is not to slam people because you need them, because you, know, you need people to help you write. And so a lot of times you'll find yourself, maybe somebody will pitch something that you don't think is great, but they don't pitch a lot. You can tell they're nervous. Sometimes you'll say, you know what, that's great, put that in. And then it goes up on the board, and then they get, you know, you see, they feel good. And you're doing that just to encourage them, because you want them to loosen up a little bit so that they start to pitch. And you also know that you're going to do a thousand drafts of this thing before you shoot it. So the thing you didn't like will fall out somewhere down the road. You know, so it's like there are ways, you know, that you want to, you know, you want to encourage people. So um, uh, any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. They're less likely to read it because they don't want to be accused yeah. later of having that storyline, even if it's something they already have. That's a good point, and there's two reasons for that. Um, uh, what you were saying, if you didn't hear, was is it true that you don't want to send a spec sample of a show to somebody writing on that show? And the answer is you almost never want to do that for two reasons. One for the one you just mentioned, which is the legal ramification of, you know, it could very well be an episode that they're working on that you don't know about, and now you've sent this in, and now they feel like legally we're not protected because now we've seen this thing that you know, which is a problem that a lot of people, like I in general, do not read um, uh, scripts or movie scripts from people that I don't personally really know for exactly that legal reason. 
Um, that's one reason. The other is that, um, um, is that you can almost never write uh, an acceptable episode of a show to the people who write it. You know, because they know exactly how their characters sound. Like, I know how Michael Bluth talks. I know how such a... So when I read yours, it may be very good, but you're going to go, eh, it's not really how Tobias would talk like that. You know, so, so it, there's a, a level of criticism that, that, you know, you would get that you wouldn't otherwise get. So you typically want to send a really strong sample of something that's not their show. Um, and, yeah? Well, representation is helpful in the sense that it sort of gets you into the tent, you know, with the elephants and the clowns, um, you know, but it, it is by no means the only way in. Writer's assistants are, are not represented. They're not, you know, um, and that is, again, the most typical way to get in. Um, you know, it is, it, it's helpful, but it is by no means, uh, um, you know, it's by no means necessary, um, you know. And also, just having representation doesn't really mean much of anything because then you're just kind of you, you, you're you're fighting it out with everybody else who's looking, you know, with the game of musical chairs. You know, everybody else is looking for a job. They have representation too, and all that. The reason that people typically get jobs in television is because they have some personal connection to the person that's doing the hiring or somebody on the show that they've worked with them before or something like that. Unless you're coming in at the um, uh, you know uh, the most junior level, and that's the best way to break in is to try to come in as a writer assistant or something like that. Because once you begin to move up in level, then you tend to get jobs because you've worked with somebody before and, and all of that. And that's not a problem that's that happens with uh, you know if you're coming in as a writer's assistant or something. So in the meantime, having a few uh, WGA like registered yeah yeah. Yeah, you always want that because you always want to be able to demonstrate that you're a writer, you know, so that even though, say, you're trying to get a writer assistant job or something like that, um, you know, the, what they primarily want in a writer's assistant is a good writer's assistant. I mean, I, you know, first of all, nobody's saying, you know, I'm super excited in investing several years in the career of this person because I hope it pays off one day. What they really want is somebody who doesn't screw up the typing, you know, while they're talking and all that. But, you know, if they know that, you know, you're a writer, you've been working at it, you've got scripts, you seem energetic and eager and all of that, then, you know, that certainly works in your favor. Uh, because they also know that you'll, you're just aware of what writers go through while they're, you know, trying to gut their way through a script. So, yeah. Yeah. Do people in live action television tend to pitch with storyboards? Almost never. Um, you know, unless you're doing, you know, a one hour with effects in it or something like that, you know, where typically you might want some storyboards just to, just to, you know, so everybody's on the same page. Uh, for the most part, storyboards are never used. And I know in animation, they're almost the, the, the coin of the realm, basically. But, um, but it's, it's different, it, you know, uh, it's different in, in live action. Anything else? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you the shows I like the most. I don't know if they're the most well-written, but they probably are. Um, I, I'm a huge True Blood fan. I, I love True Blood. I love Walking Dead. Um, uh, I love Game of Thrones. Um, you know, uh, comedies, I've liked 
and Modern Family. I tend not to watch a lot of comedy, oddly enough, because that's mostly what I do. You know, so it's like I think a lot of times people, at the end of the day, you go home, eh, I know how that works. You know, it's like a, pl <laughs> a plumber doesn't want to, you know, you know, mess with the toilet when he comes home. Um, uh, you know, I, I tend to like a lot of those, you know, serial Dexter. You know, I, I like a lot of those, you know, heavily serialized, intricate character -y, kind of justified as another show I think is really good. Um, so, you know, I tend to like a lot of those. Um, I, I always love a lot of those, like, like you know, soapy, steamy, historical drama, like the Tudors and um, all that. I like that stuff, too. Um, yeah? Um, kind of on that last note, uh, have you ever written for a more serious show and you find it's a very different environment? Well, 413 Hope Street was a serious show. And, um, and the environment was different. Um, you know, it, uh, but it was weird in that it was like, it was a serious show created by people who predominantly wrote comedy. It was Damon Wayans and myself. And what I've since learned about that is that, you know, um, there are no darker people in the world than comedy writers. <laughs> and, and so when you, when you see dramas created by comedy writers, they're always the most pitch black. <laughs> Like, drama writers wouldn't write something that dark, you know? And so we found ourselves, I mean, we, we, it was just too damn dark. I, I you know, we kids were dying. It was about a youth crisis center in Manhattan, you know? And it was actually We just, our tendency was to go so dark with it. And, you know, and like by, you know, episode five, you know, many kids had been killed in the center and all that. And Damon at one point was like, why are kids coming to this crisis center? They're all, they're all getting killed. And I was like, yeah, I know. It's, it's, I know. And, and the, the one thing we didn't do was, um, okay, we gotta go. Yeah, the one thing we didn't do was, uh, I gotta run, was the, um, when we were casting that, we ended up uh, casting uh, Robert Roundtree, or Richard Roundtree, who used to be Shaft. You know, he was the, the lead of it. But, you know, we saw a lot of people come in for that role. And one of the guys who came in was Tony Todd, who played Candyman. And, you know, and he was a really good actor, really good. And, you know, but he came in and he was, he was Candyman, you know. I want to talk to you, children. You know, and we were like, we're like we can't have Candyman helping the kids. I mean, he looks like he wants to gut him. Um, Anyway, I know that's very off topic, but I, I gotta, I, I'm done, my time's up. So um, thank you all very much. It was a pleasure meeting you. Enjoy the con. Where are you I just sold a new show to uh, ABC Family, and uh, I'm writing the pilot right now, so hopefully I'll be doing that show. Thanks a lot. That was fun. Hello, this is John Scalzi, and you're listening to Versus the World Radio.